Welcome to today's podcast and thank you so very much for joining us. Our theme for today is the perfect strength of God. Our primary scripture reference is 2 Corinthians 12 verse 9 where the Apostle Paul declares, God said to me, my grace is sufficient for thee for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly therefore will I rather glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. In this passage, Paul had received a thorn in his flesh because of the abundance of revelation that he had received. Paul asked God three times to take the thorn out. And God said, in essence, no. And the reason that God said no is because he wanted Paul to know that his grace would always be sufficient for him. The answer to Paul's request did not take the form he had expected. In the distress and stress inflicted at various times by his thorn, God promised that Paul would never lack sufficient grace. In other words, God was saying, whatever you encounter in your life, whatever hardship or adverse circumstances you go through, whatever hurts, harms, or hinders you, Paul, I want you to know that my grace is sufficient. This lesson became a part of Paul's spiritual growth, which was absolutely necessary because it was through these life lessons uh, that he walked and walked in and obeyed God that he was empowered to write 14 of the 27 New Testament books that we have in our Bibles. When God told Paul that my grace is sufficient, it had marked a permanent effect on Paul's attitude in life and ministry. An attitude refers to our emotions, beliefs, and behaviors towards a particular matter, a person, thing, or event. With the pain and reality of the thorn in his flesh as his constant companion, Paul developed an attitude of gratitude because of the sufficient grace of God. The grace of God is also an indicator of power as well as favor that is made perfect. This is a part of spiritual growth, even in weakness, in order that God's God's power may rest upon us which literally means to tabernacle upon us. Paul's language here is reminiscent of the Shekinah glory of God. Shekinah is the English transliteration of a Hebrew word meaning dwelling or settling and denotes the dwelling or settling of the divine presence of God as noted in Exodus chapter 13, beginning at the 20th verse. The Bible says, By day the Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud, to guide them on their way. And by night, he was a pillar of fire to give them light so that they could travel by day or night. Neither the pillar of cloud by day nor the pillar of fire by night left its place in front of the people. In other words, as God's people, the glory of God always dwells with us. He dwells in and settles in leading and guiding, which further states in Romans 8, Uh, which Paul further states in Romans 8 and 14, they that are led by the Spirit, they are the sons of God. Even through the reality of the thorn in his flesh, Paul declares in Romans chapter 8, beginning at the 35th verse, who or what shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine, nakedness, peril or sword? As it is written, for thy sake, we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. But know in all these things, 
We are more than conquerors through him that loved us, for I am persuaded. That's what Paul was admonishing us, even with this thorn in his flesh. I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Paul's letter to the church of Corinth and our primary passage for today's podcast was probably written around the year 55 AD or 55 years after Jesus ascended back to heaven, where the book of Romans was written around the year 57 AD. Therefore, we learn that this two-year time frame since he had experienced his thorn in his flesh was foundational to his encouragement to the church at Rome that we are more than conquerors and nothing can separate us from the love of God. In other words, as Paul was discussing that neither death nor life nor principalities nor things present nor things to come shall be able to separate us from the love of God, Paul still had his thorn in his flesh. Paul's path of spiritual growth for the rest of his days included this thorn in his flesh. Therefore, the life lesson that you and I learn is that there are some things. It may be a family member that is a thorn in our flesh. Our thorn in the flesh may be a painful past, a memory of the past that we can uh, or we would rather forget. Our thorn in the flesh may be a physical ailment, as many believed it was for Paul. Our thorn in the flesh may be the way that we think about ourselves or what other people think about us or have done to us. But Paul learned, as you and I must learn, that God's grace is sufficient, adequate, because God's power finds its full place and strength in our weakness. The greater our acknowledged weakness, the more evident God's strength and Christ's power can become in our lives. Moses, the deliverer of God's people, experienced the perfect strength of God during a 40-year leadership development course on the backside of the desert. God had called Moses to be the leader of the nation of Israel from a burning bush in Exodus chapter 3 verse 2. And within himself, Moses was stating or feeling like or believing that he was incapable of fulfilling the call that God had placed on his life. Moses looked at a bush that was burning and was not consumed, and the bush was talking to him. Moses had to first wrap his mind around the fact that he was hearing and talking to God himself. Now in Exodus chapter 3, verse 11, we see that Moses was concerned that he lacked an identity when he said to God, who am I that I should go unto Pharaoh and that I should bring forth the children of Israel out of Egypt? In Exodus 3 and 13, we see that Moses was concerned that he lacked a message when he said to God, when I come to the children of Israel, your people shall say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me unto you. And they're going to ask me, well, what is his name? What shall I say unto them? In Exodus 4 and 1, we see that Moses was concerned that he lacked authority when he said to God, but behold, they will not believe me nor hearken unto me. They're not going to listen to me for they're going to say the Lord, hadn't appeared to you. Who are you? In Exodus chapter 5, verse 23, in the voice translation, we see that Moses was concerned about the lack of success when he said to God, ever since I approached Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done more harm to your people than ever before. And you have done nothing to rescue your people. And this 
is what Moses, what made Moses the perfect candidate because it was God's perfected strength that was the answer to all of his questions where he believed he lacked authority, where he lacked a message, where he lacked an identity, where he lacked success. This was this was a proof, a, a proof text or a proving moment in his life where Moses, Moses proved to be the perfect candidate because it was God's perfected strength that guaranteed or answered all of his questions. As God said to Paul hundreds of years later in 2 Corinthians 12 and 9, my strength is made perfect in weakness. Well, let me rewind Moses' experience just for a moment with the perfect strength of God just a little bit. When Moses asked the question concerning the God of your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the people of God, Israelites knew Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So when Moses asked the question concerning the God of your fathers, who has sent me? And if they ask, what is his name? God says in Exodus 3 and 14 to Moses, tell them, I am that I am. And he said, thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, I am am has sent me unto you. God was training Moses to know that the perfect strength of God is in his name. In the amplified version of Exodus 3 and 14, God says, I am who I am and what I am, and I will be what I will be. And he said, you shall say this to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. At this point in human history, This name, I am that I am for God, is new to mankind. For the first time, God identifies himself using terminology and language that will be crucial in both the foundational aspects of the Jewish and Christian understanding of his character and nature or that which makes him God. As a name, the phrase I am indicating his eternal, uncreated, necessary, absolute existence I am is the ultimate statement of self-sufficiency, self-existence, omniscience, omnipotence, and I'm, and the omnipresence of I am. God's existence is not contingent upon anything or anyone else. His plans are not contingent upon any circumstances. He promises that he will be what he will be, and he will constantly and eternally and always be God. I am that I am connects us to the Hebrew term, Yahweh or Jehovah. When God identified himself as I am that I am, he stated that no matter when or where, he is always there, which is further expressed in Revelations 1 and 8. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. This is true of I am that I am for all time. He stands ever present and unchangeable, completely sufficient in himself to do what he wills to do and to accomplish what he wills to accomplish. God's use of I am to Moses demonstrates his identity as Jehovah. Yahweh or Jehovah was the covenant name or the covenant name of God in the Old Testament used to express God's relationship with his people. Jesus taking on human flesh that he might bring humanity into an everlasting relationship with God as the great I am says in John 6 and 35, I am the bread of life. In John 8 and 12, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. In John 10 and 9, Jesus says, I am the door. In John 10 and 11, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. In John eleven twenty five, 25, Jesus says, I am the resurrection in the life. 
In John 14 and 6, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And in John 15 and 5, Jesus says, I am the vine. Many of us has walked with the Lord for 20, 30, 40 years or more, but there will always be more for us to learn about the nature and character of the perfect strength of God. I am that I am. As God's people, both in the Old Testament and New Testament, the perfect strength of God is the revelation of the fact that I am that I am, or the strength and power, or the perfect strength of his power is in his name. The contemporary English version of Psalm 91 tells us to live under the protection of God most high and stay in the shadow of God all powerful. Then you will say to the Lord, you are my fortress, my place of safety. You are my God and I trust you. This is the perfect strength of God, a trust that transcends or rises above any circumstance or situation because our trust is in the great I am that I am, the perfect strength of God. David testifies in Psalm 61 and 3, for thou hast been a shelter for me and a strong tower from the enemy. No one would have ever imagined hundreds of Americans storming our nation's capital in violent acts against our democracy and the moral fiber or foundation of what truly makes America great. And despite acts such as these, the Lord is our fortress and our place of safety. What makes America great and any nation great is the fact that God has chosen us as his people for his inheritance. The Bible tells us in Psalm 33 and 12, blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord and the people whom he hath chosen for his own inheritance. In other words, nations or individuals who acknowledge the Lord as Savior and sovereign and keep his commands will receive God's supernatural blessings, his gracious favor upon them. When we acknowledge and receive him, we live out the reality of Psalm 24 and 7, where we lift up our heads, O ye gates, and be ye lifted up, ye everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? It's the Lord God, strong and mighty in battle. Despite the violence, despite the political divide, despite the racist attitudes of inequality and injustice, what makes America great are the prayers of the righteous. In Proverbs 15 and 29, the Bible says the Lord is far from the wicked, but he hears the prayers of the righteous. The Amplified Version of James 5 and 16 declares the earnest, heartfelt, continued prayer of a righteous man makes tremendous power available, dynamic in its working. Philippians 4, 6, and 7 teaches us, trains us, don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Jesus, the perfect strength of God personified, tells his disciples in Mark eleven twenty four, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it shall be yours. Prayer is rooted and established in the perfect strength of God, the name of the Lord. Proverbs 18 and 10 tells us the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run into it and are safe. Solomon, the wisest man to live other than Christ our Lord, instructs us to run and shelter ourselves 
in the name of the Lord. In the name of the Lord is our safety, the perfect strength of God. The Lord in Proverbs 18 and 10 in the original Hebrew is Jehovah. Jehovah or Yahweh, which is the personal name of God. It is a name by which he establishes his covenant with humanity. It is his desire for covenant relationship with you and I as his people. His name is a strong tower, a shelter, a fortress for us as his people that saves us when pursued by the enemy or confronted with the pressures of life. The righteous run into it and are safe. Moses experienced, David experienced, Solomon experienced the perfect strength of God that is in his name. And as they did then, so must you and I now experience afresh and anew and know him in the power and strength of his name. With our country continuing to exist in what seems like a perpetual political divide, where many of our elected officials apparently are unconcerned about morality and righteousness, where there are people in our country that have little or no value for the lives of others because of the color of their skin. We must know him as El Elyon, the most high God, possessor of heaven and earth. We must know him as Elroy, the God who sees and watches over you and me. We must know him as El Shaddai, the God of the much more, who makes all grace abound towards me so that you and I have all sufficiency in all things. We must know him as Jehovah Jireh, our provider. We must know him as Jehovah Nisi. His banner over us is his love. As Jehovah Nisi, he is my victory. We must know him as Jehovah Rapha, the Lord that healeth me. We must know him as Jehovah Sitzkanu, the one who justifies me. We must know him as Jehovah Shalom, the Lord our God, who is our peace. We must know him as Jehovah Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts. We must know him as Jehovah Ra, the Lord who is my shepherd and I shall not want. And because God's strength is made perfect in our weakness, you and I experience every day the perfect strength of God because the power and perfect strength of God is in his name, where there is nothing missing, nothing lacking, and there is nothing broken because we, like the Apostle Paul, the man who lived the rest of his life in ministry with a thorn in his flesh, we declare as he declared in Philippians 3 and 10, I want to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable to his death. There's nothing pleasant about suffering pain and having people oppose us, treat us badly or wrong. There's nothing pleasant about that. And there's nothing wrong with being honest about that fact. How could Paul make such a statement about fellowshipping with suffering? I submit to you that Paul learned that no matter what he had to endure, because just prior to discussing his thorn in his flesh in 2 Corinthians 12, in 2 Corinthians the 11th chapter, Paul, beginning at the 25th verse, says, Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I have been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, from bandits, in danger from my own countrymen, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, danger in the country, danger at sea, and in danger from false brothers. I have labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. <clears throat> I have known hunger and thirst. 
and have often gone without food. I've been cold and naked. And after all of this, in 2 Corinthians 12 and 9, Paul declares God's reply to his request to remove the thorn in his flesh. After this litany list of sufferings that he had endured, God says to Paul, my grace is sufficient for thee. My strength is made perfect in weakness. Paul then replies, God, if that's your final answer, most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. The grace of God is the strength and power of God, the tabernacles that rest upon you and me. When we are weak, a sign and a symbol of our dependency upon him, that is when he is strong, where you and I live in his perfected or perfect strength that is the power of the great I am that I am.